The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think we can assume that the Justice Department has well more than probable cause against Rudy Giuliani. If this were a marginal case, I don't think for a search warrant, I don't think, you know, Merrick Garland would have taken a significantly different view than the Justice Department did. The U.S. Attorney's Office in New York is most unlikely to execute a search warrant or the FBI is most unlikely to execute a search warrant against a lawyer acting in his capacity as a lawyer who's representing the former president of the United States, who also happens to be the former head of the, you know, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York and a former associate attorney general without a very good reason to do it. And so I think we should assume that the evidence is pretty compelling. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. May 5th, 2021. Rudy Giuliani played a central role, both in President Trump's response to the Mueller investigation and in the drama in Ukraine that eventually led to Trump's first impeachment. Now, a year later, Giuliani is back in the news thanks to reports of a search of his apartment by federal investigators in the Southern District of New York. What exactly is Giuliani being investigated for? And how does it connect to his role in the first impeachment? What does it mean that the Justice Department reportedly decided not to move ahead with the search under the Trump administration, but that Attorney General Merrick Garland gave the thumbs up? I spoke with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes and Lawfare Deputy Managing Editor Jacob Schultz to catch up on just what is going on in the wild world of Rudy Giuliani. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 5th, The Return of Rudy. After a year of quiet, everyone's favorite lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, is back in the headlines once again. Jacob, can you bring us up to speed on why on earth we're talking about Rudy right now? Yeah, so Rudy is back this time because on April 28th, the FBI executed search warrants against his home and his office in New York City, and they took a bunch of computers, a bunch of phones to to look more into them. And So at the time of the execution of the warrant and in the days since, there have been a bunch of news stories sort of explaining what might be at issue, what the FBI might be after. So for what we know, it has to do with his business dealings in Ukraine and his involvement in some things that will remind a bunch of people to the 2019 impeachment scandal. So there are certain parts of Giuliani's efforts to remove the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine that are 
involved in this. So a bunch of different threads. And Reuters had a big follow-up story yesterday that filled in a bunch of gaps about what was actually on the warrant. So Reuters spoke with Giuliani's attorney and a bunch of the people who are named on the warrant are really, it's its just a who's who of the 2019 scandal. I was looking at my tabs on my computer when I was prepping for this, and it, it may well have been December of 2019. And so the people on the warrant were Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who are two of Giuliani's associates who are in the mix of all the efforts to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden. There's John Solomon, who is a journalist who who had pushed disinformation-laden op-eds that were involved in the whole thing. There's Petro Poroshenko, the former head of state of Ukraine, and and lots of other folks who really harken back to the, the 2019 scandal. So so that's why Rudy is back, because of a, an investigation and a search warrant executed at his home. And Ben, what were your thoughts when you saw this Rudy news? I sort of had this moment of, you know, oh God, it's Groundhog Day. Here we go again. What did you think? So on the one hand, I had that reaction as well. On the other hand, you know, I was kind of expecting it in the sense that if Rudy's dealings were as shady as they frankly seemed to be, even at the time, it was not reasonable to expect that he would escape accountability and investigation for them after Trump left office. And we know that these characters were bad enough that some of them were indicted in real time, Fruman and Parnas in particular. And we also know from news reporting that there were a lot of other elements of this that would legitimately spark investigative concern. So it's not too surprising that once you remove the inhibitions associated with investigating the incumbent president's lawyer while he's engaged in activities on behalf of the incumbent president, that something like this would happen. So I, I, I guess on the one hand, there was a Groundhog Day quality to it. And on the other hand, there was a, you know, kind of, well, what did you expect to happen quality to it? There's also a particular irony with Giuliani, the Giuliani investigation progressing to this point. Obviously, he's become a name associated with political scandal and Donald Trump over the last two years. But there are other aspects of his background that make it particularly amusing that he's now facing an FBI investigation in the Southern District of New York. I'm looking at a book right now I have on my desk that's titled Leadership by Rudolph W. Giuliani, where he looks very noble on the cover. Ben, can you just remind listeners who might have thankfully forgotten it what Giuliani's background is and why there's some irony in his being investigated right now in SDNY? Yeah. So first of all, you know, those who whose memories of Rudy Giuliani are limited to the last few years will forget, may reasonably forget that this was not always a clownish figure. Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is to say the head of the office that now sought and received the search warrant against him. He was also the Associate Attorney General of the United States during the Reagan administration. He was, of course, most famously the mayor of New York, including during 9-11, 
and in that role was a quite celebrated leadership figure who used the celebrity associated with his, you know, genuinely admirable role in the period immediately around 9-11 to uh, launch a presidential run in 2012. And so this, you know, this was somebody who prior to Donald Trump was generally regarded as a credible, serious figure who whatever one thought of him, and he certainly had his eccentricities, was not regarded as a as a clown and certainly was not regarded as a criminal. He was he was regarded as a tough on crime mayor and prosecutor who kind of represented the, you know, sort of the establishment wing of the Republican Party that was not especially socially conservative and that was, you know, sort of a uh, compatible with, you know, the sort of sort of cosmopolitan values of a place like New York City. In 2019, when news that Rudy was potentially being investigated first cropped up, uh, New York Magazine got a quote from him about the fact that he was being investigated by his former office, where and he responded, and I quote, if they're investigating me, they're assholes. So let's talk a little bit about what specifically it is that Rudy has done and uh, how he's sort of fallen from that pedestal that Ben described. So reportedly, according to the New York Times, one of the warrants for Giuliani's devices suggested that investigators were searching for communications between him and several Ukrainian officials, including the former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, and two former prosecutors who helped him collect information about the Bidens in Ukraine. The Times also reported that uh, federal authorities have focused on whether Giuliani illegally lobbied the Trump administration in 2019 on behalf of Ukrainian officials and oligarchs. Jacob, that sounds pretty complicated. Can you go a little bit more in depth on what exactly it is that Giuliani was doing that seems to have gotten him in trouble here and how that connects to the impeachment in 2019? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different threads to this. So I think the, the logical place to start is maybe with Poroshenko. So just to be clear, there's another Ukrainian former head of state with ties to Trump's inner circle, and that's Viktor Yanukovych, who had employed Paul Manafort. So this is different head of state of Ukraine. So Poroshenko takes over after Yanukovych. And there's a bunch of reporting that suggests that in February of 2019, while Poroshenko was still the president and before he would go on to lose to current President Zelensky, two of Giuliani's associates, so that's Parnas and Fruman, they go to Poroshenko and they say something to the effect of, look, we want you to do some digging that might benefit President Trump in his upcoming presidential campaign. And if you're able to do that, we'll arrange for you to have a state visit in Washington, D.C. So, so something to that effect. And also in on that visit is Yuri Lutsenko, who's a former prosecutor in Ukraine and who was really a, a major player in the Ukraine impeachment scandal. So this meeting happens, and it's right at the time where Poroshenko is in the middle of his presidential race, and he's really doing very badly in the polls. He's deeply unpopular, likely going to lose, and he sees the chance to, to have an official state visit in Washington, D.C. As, as a really important thing for, for both him and his campaign. It's something that could improve his image in a country where American support is really important and, you know, with Russian military presence in the east of the country. So with all of that as backdrop, 
Giuliani is sort of involved with this meeting between Parnas, Fruman, and Poroshenko. And it's really not totally clear what exactly Rudy knew about all this, whether he was you know, directly involved with this explicit message that Parnas and Fruman came to him with. But there is, there's reporting that suggests that Rudy had met with Parnas and met with Fruman and met with Litsenko multiple times in the immediate run-up to the Poroshenko meeting. So it does seem like that meeting where these associates of Giuliani's are sort of coming to Poroshenko with this message of, look, you got to dig up some dirt that, that might benefit President Trump. And if you're able to do that, we'll do something for you, which, again, is a exchange that sounds quite familiar when you think about what happened in, in the 2019 impeachment scandal. So that's that's really the part of this that's at the middle. But then there's also a whole nother related thread that, again, has really clear links to the impeachment scandal of last year that has to do with Giuliani and Parnas and Fruman's efforts to get the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine removed. And we can talk about that later. But those are sort of the two, from reporting, those are the two sort of main threads. And this, I think what makes this different from impeachment, and we can talk about this again later on, is that right impeachment has to do with the ways in which Rudy was or wasn't communicating these things with Trump and the involvement of Trump and Trump's inner circle in, in getting these sort of quid pro quo type favors secured, whereas this investigation, at least from reporting, seems to be more focused on whether or not Rudy's efforts here had to do with his connections to Ukrainian officials and Ukrainian oligarchs who he may or may not have been working for. And can you remind listeners how this ends up connecting to what's at the center of the 2019 impeachment scandal? So the Trump's efforts to pressure Ukrainian President Zelensky to produce derogatory information on the Bidens. How does it how do those two things connect? Yeah, right. So the most clear link is that, again, as I said, with Poroshenko in office and Poroshenko then leaves office. But while Poroshenko is in office, they're they're trying to get him to, to scrounge up this dirt on Biden and on his family. And so Poroshenko loses. There's a new president in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, and Zelensky's in office. And effectively, the same effort continues, right? They want to get dirt on Hunter Biden. And, and in this case, it's very specific dirt having to do with his role on the Ukrainian gas company, Burisma. And it's effectively, if you listen to like what the story is about how Parnas and Fruman interacted with Poroshenko. Very, very similar pattern continues with Zelensky. Zelensky wants contact with Trump. He wants a visit to Trump. And, you know, the at the center of the Ukraine scandal was whether or not there was a quid pro quo for that contact with Trump to be conditioned upon his digging up dirt on Hunter Biden. So you really do see the continuity of the effort here between two different Ukrainian administrations. And right, there's a whole different thread of this, which is related. And again, we should talk about in greater depth, which is with the Ukraine impeachment scandal, listeners will probably remember that a major subplot of it was the extent to which Trump, Giuliani, and others had pressured the US ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, to to leave and had sort of conducted something of a smear campaign against her. And that, again, pops up in the context of this Giuliani investigation. Right. So before before we dig more into the specifics of the news about Giuliani, I do think it would be useful to set out some facts about the smearing and firing of the ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. Can you remind us about that? 
Yeah, so Yovanovitch was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from August of 2016 to May of 2019. And starting sometime in the summer of 2018, a bunch of people in the extended Trump universe, so this includes media commentators and even you know Donald Trump Jr., get involved in this campaign to smear Yovanovitch and to sort of pressure her to, to be removed as ambassador. And in the context of the original impeachment scandal, this is a big deal, right? It's people very close to the president pressuring for the removal of a U.S. ambassador. And and there's some really disturbing aspects of the whole effort to get Yovanovitch out and to pressure her. There's Lev Parnas was in touch with this, this man, Robert Hyde, who's sort of this ambiguous Republican political operative. And during the course of the impeachment investigation, there was reporting that that released their WhatsApp messages between Hyde and Parnas. And there's this very disturbing and sort of gratuitously misogynistic exchange between the two of them about how they need to get they need to get Yovanovitch out. And Hyde even talks about having private security teams monitoring Yovanovitch's whereabouts. And he'll report back to Parnas like really specific stuff about you know, the number of people that Yovanovitch talked to in a given day. So again, this is people connected to Giuliani unleashing private security contractors to surveil the U.S. ambassador alongside a, a very public media campaign to, to smear her as well. And so during the course of this impeachment investigation, she reveals a bunch of pieces of information about why she thinks that Giuliani and Giuliani's associates might have been interested in her removal. And so there, there are certainly some things that have to do with Trump, but the main thing that she actually focuses on, and I went back and looked at some of the material from her deposition before the House Intelligence Committee, is that she she's really convinced that people associated with Giuliani believe that they have financial incentives to get her out as ambassador. Because in, in her tenure as ambassador, she had been really, really big on pushing these anti-corruption reforms in, in Ukraine, a country that has really struggled with corruption and sort of with the immense power that big financial interests have in, in the country. And she was a big supporter of, of sort of cleaning that up. And she believes, and she, she says that she talked to her counterparts in the Zelensky government that Parnas and Fruman had been arranging meetings for Giuliani and the prosecutor Lutsenko. And for business reasons, for business reasons of people associated with them, they wanted to get her out as ambassador. So that's a long backstory, but just really hammers home the extent to which, you know, they're, the interest in getting her out as ambassador, at least as she describes it, and as reporting describes it, yes, a lot of it has to do with things connected to Trump's political fortunes, but there's also a whole nother side of this that has to do with the business interests of people associated with Giuliani and who may have been employing Giuliani. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off 
is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So let's talk about what precisely the the hook is for the criminal investigation of Giuliani. Ben, the New York Times reported that, and I quote, at least one of the search warrants for Mr. Giuliani's devices explicitly stated that the possible crimes under investigation included the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Can you remind listeners what that act is? Yeah, the Foreign Agents Registration Act is a law. It is mostly not enforced criminally, but it does have criminal provisions, and it requires that Americans operating, or non-Americans for that matter, operating in the United States as agents of a foreign principle, which can be a state, a business, a nonprofit organization. It can basically be anything that's, you know, any foreign entity. Uh, that if you're operating in the United States in the political arena as agents of a foreign principle, you have to register with the Justice Department. And so one possibility here is that Rudy Giuliani, uh, or one potential theory of liability, is that Rudy Giuliani was operating on behalf of. Ukrainian oligarchs of a pro-Russian disposition or on behalf of some other entity and did not disclose that to the Justice Department and register as a foreign agent. Now, it's important to emphasize that the theory of liability in a search warrant is not necessarily the theory of liability that will show up in the indictment if and when there is an indictment. It is merely uh, something that the Justice Department believes or the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI believes that they can establish probable cause for, for purposes of the search warrant. But that does appear to be the basis for the investigation or at least one of the bases for the investigation. Right. And we'll talk a little bit more about the question of what's required for a search warrant in a bit. But before that, I did note that Giuliani said on Tucker Carlson's show that he's added clauses to his contracts in countries like Ukraine to, and I quote, say that he will not engage in lobbying or foreign representation. Ben, that that makes it totally illegal, right? Well, so first of all, it, it does not necessarily correct issues that arose earlier before those clauses were added. But secondly, the definition of agency of a foreign principle is significantly broader than just lobbying. So if you are operating, for example, in a PR context on behalf of a foreign principle, that can trigger the requirement to register. If you're meeting with people in the political arena in order to you know, butter them up so that a deal can happen, that can trigger an obligation to register. The text of the Foreign Agents Registration Act is exceptionally broad. And on its face, it incorporates a lot of things that would be pretty tricky to correct by contract. In addition, the law does not say that you can't enter into a contract to do X and Y and Z. It says you can't do X and Y and Z 
without registering. And so I don't think that contractual language alone would necessarily solve the problem if there is a problem. Right. And to be clear, Rudy did say that he'd, uh, he's also said he in the contract that he would not engage in foreign representation. So perhaps he's covered, although that doesn't solve the problem of uh, what the contract can and can't do. Jacob, before we move on to discussing the circumstances of the war in, I wanted to turn to you to sort of remind listeners of where we've seen Farah pop up before. It's really been a, a power player in the Mueller investigation. Can you give us an overview of where it's showed up before and how that compares to how it's showing up now? Yeah. So as Ben mentioned, Farah used to be almost never enforced in a prosecutorial context by the Justice Department, right? But then in the Mueller years, and even a little bit before then, it, it really has this revitalization as a prosecutorial tool. So there are some major players from the Trump world that have gotten ensnared with FARA charges. So Michael Flynn got in trouble for making false statements in FARA documents about his work on behalf of the Turkish government. And you know, as Ben mentioned, a lot of that had to do with things that were in a very PR capacity on behalf of the Turkish government. So there's Flynn, and then Paul Manafort pleaded guilty to conspiracy in connection with FARA violations for failing to register his lobbying work on behalf of Viktor Yanukovych and the government of Ukraine. And then there's lots of others. So even as recently as as at the end of last year, Elliot Brody, who's a political fundraiser, pleaded guilty last October to FARA charges in connection with lobbying on behalf of the Chinese and Malaysian governments. And there's all sorts of others in the course of the Mueller investigation, including, as been alluded to, some people who are not actually American for for their activity on social media as agents of the Russian government, which is an interesting wrinkle of the way that the Justice Department has used Farah. But at the end of the day, it really is, it's becoming an increasingly common tool for, for the Justice Department in the prosecutorial context. Let's talk about the circumstances of this warrant. The New York Times reported that under President Trump, prosecutors had wanted to move ahead with the search, but that senior political appointees sought to block the warrants. And after President Biden took office and Attorney General Merrick Garland was confirmed, the Justice Department lifted its objections. According to the Times, the department first objected during the summer of 2020 on the grounds that any search would be too close to the election. And then again in the fall. So Ben, what should we make of this? Is it totally inappropriate for the Justice Department under Trump to have intervened here? Or can you make a good faith argument for the delay? Because, you know, after all, there, as we all know, there is a policy that DOJ should try to avoid taking actions that could affect the outcome of an election here. Yeah, so there's several issues that potentially justify main justice's involvement. One is the policy of not taking overt steps in an investigation. Normally, that is, by the way, an investigation of a candidate, right? This is, of course, Rudy Giuliani is not a candidate. He is a lawyer for one of the candidates. And so I can kind of see the relevance of that argument as a prudential matter, maybe the last thing the country needed in, you know, August before the election was you know, a big fight over the propriety of a search warrant executed against the president's lawyer. 
particularly when the facts that would support it couldn't be released. And so that's one possible basis. The the second possible basis is that when you execute a search warrant or apply for a search warrant involving a lawyer in his or her capacity as a lawyer representing a client, that is a very touchy subject under any circumstances and actually is a matter that the Justice Department has special procedures for that require consultation I believe at least with the deputy attorney general's office or you know with with main justice. So the idea that the US attorney's office in New York would have had to go to main justice and vet this does not seem unreasonable to me. Now what does seem peculiar is that there was a difference between the way the prior administration assessed that request and the way the current administration assess that request. And that does look to me like an area where politics may have crept into it or may be creeping into it now. That gets into the question of whom do you trust more, Bill Barr or Merrick Garland? That is a a relatively easy question for me. But that said, the facts are not clear on it. I do think the evidence must have been pretty strong to overcome two factors that might reasonably inhibit it, uh, a search warrant going forward, one being that you are dealing with a lawyer acting in his capacity as a lawyer or purported capacity as a lawyer, and the other dealing with the fact that the lawyer is for the former president. So let's talk about that a little more. To what extent does the the fact that Giuliani is the lawyer for the former president, would that affect the Justice Department's calculus here? You mentioned the role of attorney-client privilege questions in involving main justice and requiring uh, legitimately a sort of a higher level decision. Is the fact that Giuliani is Trump's former lawyer does that play into the decision making in a sort of in an official way? Like, is there a box that you have to check for investigating lawyers of former presidents? Or is it more of a kind of prudential question that you would expect the deputy attorney general to want to weigh in on just because it's politically sensitive? Well, I would expect both the deputy attorney general and the attorney general himself to be thinking about this question or to be involved in this question. And, you know, we don't know precisely when this decision was made, but the deputy attorney general was only confirmed, you know, a few days ago. And so I I, I think we can assume that this probably got Merrick Garland's individual attention, although that that is an assumption. Look, there, there is no specific playbook for how to investigate the former president's lawyer. It's not a situation that arises often enough to have a known set of rules for it. There is a known set of playbooks for investigating lawyers. And because, you know, Donald Trump would hardly be the first person under investigation or subject to investigation to use lawyers to carry out 
dirty work. And that is a an area that is a fraught area between the bar and the defense bar and the Justice Department and has been, I mean, literally my entire reporting career on the Justice Department. Uh, this issue has been, you know, percolating and occasionally erupting. And it has won that, you know, the first deputy attorney general I covered, Jamie Gorelick, had a big flare-up with the bar over exactly this issue. So this is something that happens. There are a few bases that can allow the Justice Department to proceed against a lawyer. There is a heightened standard. But the one thing that's really important is to remember that, you know, criminal activity is not covered by the attorney-client privilege. By the way, the only issue here is not potentially privileged information. There are other, you know, issues in connection with searching a lawyer's office. That said, privilege is one of the issues to the extent that Rudy Giuliani may have been involved in criminal activity. Remember that crime and fraud are exempted from the privilege. And so one question is, you know, how will the Justice Department vet this material? But the another question is how much of it will be ultimately determined to be privileged at all. During the Trump administration, we heard a lot of claims of executive privilege being invoked to shield communications with the president from congressional or law enforcement investigators. Is that in play here at all, Ben? I would say very likely not. The former president has asserted or uh, people around him uh, have asserted executive privilege or something like it in connection with his conversations with non-executive branch officials and have refused to answer questions before Congress on that basis. My guess is that in a grand jury setting, there is no way people would get away with that and any such claims would be dealt with pretty quickly by courts. That said, look, you're in uncharted territory here, and I would think people would raise all kinds of issues. And just to clarify, why why do you think it is that executive privilege probably wouldn't hold here in the grand jury context? Would that be stretching the doctrine? Well, so there's two reasons. One is that executive privilege is generally at its weakest in the grand jury setting. That's one of the important takeaways from U.S. v. Nixon, where the Supreme Court acknowledges the existence of executive privilege and then subjects it to a kind of balancing test uh, and finds that it yields before the needs of the grand jury or the, the needs of the criminal subpoena. And that is widely understood in the grand jury context to mean that the privilege is pretty weak in front of, in front of the needs of a grand jury. That said, uh, there's another reason, which is, of course, that Rudy Giuliani is not an executive branch official giving the president confidential advice within the executive branch at all. So it's not clear that there's any application of the idea of executive privilege, though there presumably is an application of the idea of attorney-client privilege to the extent that Rudy Giuliani was operating as a lawyer. And again, you know, 
normally speaking, running around Ukraine digging up dirt on people's political opponents is not considered legal advice. So I think we do have to ask every level of this question, which is, to what extent are we dealing with anything we would call lawyer advice at all? So I think, you know, I think there's going to be, you know, Rudy was not a model of the bar at its prudential best in these escapades. And I think he may pay a serious price for it in his ability to get this information suppressed as a result. The Washington Post has reported that the FBI became aware in late 2019 that Giuliani was the target of a Russian influence operation aimed at circulating falsehoods intended to damage Biden politically ahead of the 2020 election. To be clear, the Post and a number of other outlets also reported that Rudy had been briefed to this effect by the FBI, but later retracted that statement. So I just want to be clear about what we know and what we don't. We haven't touched on the sort of the Russian influence operation aspect of this story, but I do think it's important to keep in mind. Jacob, can you walk us through first what we know about the extent to which the Ukraine story was or wasn't linked to efforts by Russia to seed misinformation? And second, how you think that should shape how we understand where the investigation into Giuliani currently stands? So come 2019 and 2020, Rudy is obviously really involved in Trump's re-election campaign, and he's still he's still trying to get the dirt on the Bidens. So in December of 2019, he meets with this guy named Andrei Derkach, who's a member of Ukrainian parliament who has been publicly identified by the US government as an active Russian agent and who also just got sanctioned in the recent slate of sanctions against Russian actors. So Around the same time, also in late 2019, Giuliani and Durkach actually appear together on one American news network to make baseless claims about corruption on the elder Biden's behalf while he was vice president. And so this is, if nothing else, it's just a window in the extent to which, yes, like a lot of Giuliani's conduct in question here has to do with specific Ukrainian business interests, but really, we still can't escape the the Russian influence angle, right? It's been five years since the Russia stuff first cropped up and it still has not gone away, right? This is the 2020 election. And although it's on a far, far, far more limited scale, there's still evidence of people who have been identified as as Russian actors, Russian agents trying to influence the campaign on behalf of President Trump. So on the one hand, like that's a big takeaway. And I also think the whole aspect of this, which involves Durkach and which involves connections to the Kremlin, is really just a reminder of, of something that we saw a lot during the Mueller investigation, that there are so many layers of entanglements of these people in, in Trump's inner circle and a complete reckless disregard for where information comes from or where help comes from, so long as it benefits either personal business interests or Trump's political fortune. So right, it's it's just a reminder, again, that like, even though we're we're talking about Ukrainian businessmen and, and Ukrainian scandals, right? Like the extent to which these figures in the Trump universe are entangled with foreign actors of of dubious intentions is really we can't escape it, and right, it comes up again and again. And this is a clear reminder of the ways that that can you know, get people into trouble. Yeah, and just to amplify that point, it is not clear to me anyway whether the insinuation when 
media report on this being in part a FARA investigation, whether the foreign interests at issue are ultimately Ukrainian business interests, whether they're Russian-backed Ukrainian interests, or whether they're ultimately Russian interests. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's made interesting and more complicated by the fact that, again, Dirkach himself is a member of Ukrainian parliament, but is also someone who has been identified as a Russian actor. So lots of layers. Right. I think Ben Ben's point is really important to keep in mind. So according to Giuliani's lawyer, investigators were also looking for communications between Giuliani and a couple of other people, including the lawyer Victoria Tensing, who represented some of the Ukrainian oligarchs in the picture here, and also John Solomon, who's formerly a columnist at The Hill, who published some of the negative material about the Bidens that Giuliani was sort of looking to get out. Does that implicate press freedom issues? There's been extensive reporting about Solomon's role in publishing what what I would certainly call credulous pieces about supposed wrongdoing by Hunter Biden. But, you know, he is nominally still a journalist. Ben, what do you think? So just as executing a search warrant against a lawyer in his capacity as a lawyer raises unique issues, proceeding in an investigation in a fashion that implicates journalism also does, although they are less legally formalized. The Justice Department has procedures that it would follow before it issued any kind of subpoena to Solomon or for Solomon's records. It's not prohibited from doing so, but under a memorandum that Eric Holder implemented, it is it does do so with a certain amount of consultation and verification that there aren't easy alternative uh, ways to get the information in question. So I would say that you know John Solomon is not going to be quickly wrapped up in this investigation, though he may be at the periphery of it. If there is a need a true need for him to be involved, to be either uh, to testify or to produce records. He can be made to do so, but the Justice Department, I'm sure, would love to avoid that. It is not legally inhibited from seeking records from the press, but there is a pretty strong norm against doing it, except when, strictly speaking, necessary. What should we expect in this investigation going forward? I've seen a lot of speculation that is maybe pretty wild as people kind of shift back into Mueller investigation mode, you know, like Rudy is going to be indicted any day now and things like that. Ben, are there any lessons that you think listeners should keep in mind from the Mueller investigation and other criminal investigations you've covered about watching these kinds of things unfold and keeping speculation in the realm of the responsible? Yeah, I mean, they always, first of all, they always take longer than people think they should or want them to. Or, you know, I think we can assume that the Justice Department has well more than probable cause against Rudy Giuliani. If this were a marginal case, I don't think for a search warrant, I don't think, you know, Merrick Garland would have taken a significantly different view than the Justice Department did. The U.S. Attorney's Office in New York is most unlikely to execute a search warrant, or the FBI is most unlikely to execute a search warrant against a 
lawyer acting in his capacity as a lawyer who, who's representing the former president of the United States, who also happens to be the former head of the you know, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York and a former associate attorney general without a very good reason to do it. And so I think we should assume that the evidence is pretty compelling. That said, compelling evidence for purposes of a search warrant is pretty far from enough evidence to bring an indictment. And you shouldn't collapse those two into a remotely similar standard. They went in there looking for evidence. And the question really is, how much do they find? And does that plug adequately holes in their theory of liability that they are comfortable proceeding? There is no way to know that from the outside. And so I think the only solution is to, you know, not get ahead of where the facts are, to be responsible in analyzing it and to, uh, you know, assume that the Justice Department will, you know, proceed at its normal plodding wheels of justice, grind slow kind of pace. And we should expect President Biden to, you know, be weighing in regularly on Twitter, cheering them on and really encouraging them to go after the lawyer of his former political opponent, right? So you're you're being sarcastic, but I think the point is an important one. This is an issue in which you really do have to actually trust the attorney general and you have to trust the attorney general when he says uh, I've had no contact with the White House about this. The decisions were made by career uh, assistant U.S. attorneys and the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. They were reviewed and vetted by me and my staff, and there was no political interference in their decisions or in my decisions. You have to be able to trust the attorney general when he says that. And it is also worth being able to trust the word of the president that he and his people, the White House, has not been involved in this investigation in any way. And that's, in light of the last four years, that all sounds like a pretty naive thing to say, but that is actually an important aspect of the process so that if Rudy Giuliani is eventually indicted, you can say, you may say the indictment has the following 10 flaws and I, the Justice Department is being super aggressive and maybe even they're doing it for political reasons, I think. And Giuliani has already said that. But what you can't say is they were told by you know, the White House that this is what the president wants, right? They are acting at the behest of those in power. And that's just a super, super important protection in our system that we have, that we have a certain separation between law enforcement judgments and political judgments. And, you know, one of the great goals of Merrick Garland, as he articulated when Biden nominated him, you know, he said he wanted to restore that. And I think they are likely to be extremely careful to behave in a way that does not give rise to legitimate suspicions of political interference. There will, of course, be suspicions anyway, but, you know, you want to behave in a way that does not encourage those suspicions. 
And I do think it's important to note that President Biden said when asked that he was not aware of the raid on Giuliani ahead of time and found out along with everybody else when it was reported. I want to close by casting doubt a little bit on the entire premise of this podcast. Does this even matter? Um, You know, Trump is out of office. Giuliani is now the former lawyer to the former president instead of the lawyer to the president. Are we kind of playing ourselves by paying this close attention to the story at all? Or is this just a, a shiny distraction from more important things? Jacob, what do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think you can kind of see the ways in which like the implicit premise of that question has played out in the past week, right? Like the day the news dropped about Rudy, there sort of was this frenetic pace of mainstream, you know, like Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times reporting about stuff involving Rudy and this really frenetic pace of information and discussion that to me, was just a reminder of the extent to which everyone in the extended Trump universe just has this gravitational force to suck attention away from other things. But in the days since that's happened, you it's been interesting to me to see that, like, you know, yes, people care about this and it is an attention-grabbing thing, but it hasn't really stayed top of news headlines either in like the New York Times world or even in the Fox News world. Like it's not like Rudy is getting all the main Fox News slots. So it's this interesting thing where I think there's an instinct, a conditioned instinct, you know, among reporters and among people who pay attention to this stuff to sort of respond to anything Trump adjacent with immediacy and and urgency. But on the other hand, like, you're right that this is less important now, you know, Trump is out of office. And I think the extent to which it's important at all, at least to me, is that it it's again illustrative of the fact that while Trump was in office and while he is running for re-election, there's just so many threads behind the scenes of people in his orbit having these entanglements and having all these different obligations to foreign interests that may or may not have influenced the way that the White House acted or may or may not have influenced the way that things went down in Trump's inner circle. So to the extent that it matters as a practical matter, I think that's sort of how it matters to me. And on the other hand, the importance is sort of what you and Ben just talked about, right? It's seeing the ways in which the Justice Department might go about conducting such sort of high profile investigation under a new administration, right? So it's this interesting thing where there is this instinct to give this a bloated amount of attention. But, you know, by the time people are listening to this podcast, the Facebook Oversight Board is going to have released their decision about whether Trump gets his Facebook account back. And I would be shocked if anyone is is paying a lot of attention to Rudy after that happens, right? So it's this weird thing where it's a blip and it's a reminder of the sort of pace and chaos of the Trump years. But on the other hand, as a practical matter or as an enduring attention source, I'm, I'm not really sure there's all that much there there. I almost entirely disagree with that. I think it matters a great deal. And here's why. I agree that there's a temptation to, you know, snap back into Mueller mode and cover things in a kind of with obsessive detail and also obsessive speculation, the former of which can be helpful and the latter of which is almost never helpful. Uh, that said, I, I do think this is a super important thing. And the reason is that if you, by that 
a lot of presidential accountability cannot happen while the president remains in office. The president can't be indicted. The president has an enormous capacity to frustrate investigations, and the president has the ability up until the time he leaves office to loose Rudy Giuliani, set him to run amok in Ukraine, gathering dirt on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. And if that is the reality, and you don't want the president and his coterie to be truly above the law, the accountability mechanisms have to include uh, things that will significantly postdate the presidency. And, and so I think it is important in a non-hysterical way and a non-overwrought way to not respond to an investigation of Rudy's activities that's happening now with a shrug and it's like, well, you know, that was the last administration, let's move on. Because remember, this was an investigation that the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York wanted to do last summer and were prevented from doing, perhaps for political reasons, perhaps for legitimate prudential reasons. And so I just think there are going to be a lot of Trump mop-up stuff, both of a legal nature, of an investigative nature, of a you know, civil nature, all the sexual assault and civil litigations that couldn't go forward. And I think it's just really important not to respond to them as water under the bridge. It's water that we were unable to deal with in real time. And this is our first chance to do it. And I think we owe it to the frustrated grand juries to the potential plaintiffs who have not yet had their day in court, to the congressional committees to not forget and not treat these things as bygones that we should regard as bygones. All right, let's leave it there. Ben, Jacob, thanks so much for coming on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the podcast on whatever app you use. And as always, thanks for listening.